everybody and welcome back to Vina 007's weekly movie review podcast. As usual there are many films out in the UK this week and of the ones I haven't yet seen I'm really looking forward to a documentary about the naturalist Jane Goodall famous for all those National Geographic films and magazine articles about her work with chimpanzees in Tanzania and Kenya and it's meant to be absolutely amazing. It combines a lot of previously thought lost footage of her working in the 60s and 70s. It's set to a score by Philip Glass and has been getting really rave reviews on the festival circuit. Another film out this week is George Clooney's directorial effort, Suburbicon, starring Matt Damon and based on a script by the Coen brothers. I don't know whether to see this. It's been getting really bad reviews. It features one of its subplots, um, a story of a 1950s black family facing white supremacist race rights effectively in their home. And apparently George Clooney has not handled this with any kind of sophistication or sensitivity to the nature of that material. And that seems like a crying shame, given his liberal views, also kind of slightly ironic. Uh, What am I going to talk about this week? I'm going to review The Battle of the Sexes, which I think is the big release of the week. I'm going to also talk about Justice League, which was out last week, but I think is still doing great business in cinemas. And then I'm going to talk about two films starring Gloria Graham, the 19... 40s, 50s, 60s film star that are on re-release, time to coincide with the release of the film Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which is the story of an aged Gloria Graham coming to England and having an affair with a much younger man and stars Annette Benning, and is meant to be very good too. So without further ado, let's kick off with an excerpt from the trailer of Battle of the Sexes. Hello? Eureka, Billy Jean! It's Bobby Riggs. I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-like feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. Don't hang up. And by the way, I shave my legs. Billie Jean King, already a champion of women's rights, is now the most successful female player of all time. I am not saying that women don't belong on the court. Who would pick up the balls otherwise? Oh, my God. There's been a single thing I don't hate about Bobby Riggs. You know what I'm doing? I'm cooking. I'm cooking! I won the triple in Wimbledon. I could beat Billie Jean King. Does she have the nerve? Call Bobby. Tell him it's on. Okay, so Battle of the Sexes is a film that I saw a month or so ago now at the BFI London Film Festival. We knew when we booked to see it, it was going to be the big crowd teaser of the festival. It's such a brilliant story and it was a fantastic cast and the film absolutely lived up to all our expectations. It's a really fun watch. It contains important social and political issues but it wears them lightly, which doesn't mean that it treats them without respect or without profundity, but it just weaves the whole thing in a very easy to digest package. So I've got nothing but praise for this film. It's directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris, who directed Little Miss Sunshine. And it's written by the guy Simon Beaufoy, who wrote Slumdog Millionaire. So these are people who know how to create very likeable and uplifting movies that have a real social conscience to them. 
What the film is about is the true life and very notorious exhibition tennis match that was played in the mid-1970s between Billie Jean King, one of the all-time great tennis players, and a former Grand Slam winner who's now sort of a little bit aging and paunchy called Bobby Riggs. And they're played by Emma Stone from La La Land and Steve Carell, who's just a fantastic comic actor and has a whale of a time here. I think they are really fascinating real life characters or people, I should say. Billie Jean King, obviously, at the time was the highest uh, paid tennis star, most successful tennis star in America. But she was a woman, so she was earning a lot less than the men. And she was already trying to fight a feminist battle against the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association. And their sort of misogynistic old fashioned stance is summed up in the character of Jack Kramer, who's played by Bill Pullman. And in her fight for equality, Billie Jean King is helped by Gladys Heldman, who the more I read about her, she sounds absolutely fascinating. This feisty businesswoman, tennis promoter, played by Sarah Silverman. It's a straight role, but she's very good in it. And she decides to get all the female tennis players together and just start her own league. You know, if, you, if you're not going to pay us properly, we'll do it ourselves. And that of itself is such a sort of inspiring story about the fight for equal pay. Of course, there's a second part of Billie Jean King's life that's really fascinating, which is that at the time she's married to her husband, who seems like a thoroughly decent guy, and they both love each other, but she's coming to terms with the fact that she's gay. And so in the course of the film, we see her becoming attracted to the tall hairdresser, Marilyn, played by Andrea Riseborough. And we see her really struggling to come to terms with this. They keep the affair secret, but it's kind of an open secret. Everyone on the tour knows. Um, Eventually, the husband finds out and seems to be unbelievably patient about it. And you really get the idea that Billie Jean King is very much struggling to come out because A, it would be incredibly unusual at that time. But B, she just doesn't want to disappoint her family, her husband. And, you know, it's a real horrible situation to be in. I think what amazed me about this film is that I knew a lot about Billie Jean King, but I didn't realise that Bobby Riggs would be such an interesting character. And I think when you see the, the trailers for this film and you learn about the fact that he kind of sets himself up as a male chauvinist pig and he's going to play Billie Jean King in the battle of the sexes and will she kind of, uh, you know, be the champion in feminism and beat him or not? Does she have the courage? I think the interesting thing about Bobby Riggs is that underneath this very sort of nasty brutish misogyny he also is a fascinating character he's married to a woman played by elizabeth shoe who my goodness is aging so well and he has a gambling habit he has a love of the limelight he just wants the notoriety in a sense there's something there right there's something to his charisma to his fun i think there's a very touching scene near the end when he's almost a broken man and the wife takes him back and it's it's such a beautifully sympathetic scene where you realize there are layers and nuances to this relationship that you know we're not going to get the time to get in this film because it's really a film about Billie Jean King but it just shows you there's a little bit more to him than just the sort of comedy bad guy I guess in other words there's more to him than the pastiche of himself that he portrays and I really like that about the writing of this film So what can I say? I think this is a really great movie. It's funny. 
it's sensitive, it's serious. It really shows you just the casual misogyny of the times. My goodness, with all the sex scandals coming out now in Hollywood, maybe it's it's still the times that we live in. Um, there's one particular scene that's so horrific where the real life footage in the mid 70s of a TV male commentator kind of putting his arms around the neck and the body of this female tennis player who's a commentator on the match. It's so coercive and so, oh, it just makes you want to cringe. That is one of the kind of standout moments of the film to me, even six weeks later, I really remember it. So it's a beautiful performance by Emma Stone, a lovely, funny film, and I would really encourage you to go and see it. Battle of the Sexes has a running time of 121 minutes. It's rated PG-13. It's already on release in the USA, Canada, Australia, pretty much around the world, and opens in the UK this weekend. Okay, so on to Justice League and a little excerpt of dialogue from The Flash, a young kid who's talking to the older superhero, Batman. Right, okay, yeah, here's the thing. Um, see, I'm afraid of bugs and um, guns and obnoxiously tall people and murder and I can't be here. It's really cool, you guys seem ready to do battle and stuff, but full transparency, I've never done battle. I've just pushed some people and run away. Save one. What? Save one person. Uh, which one? Don't talk, don't fight. Get in, get one out. And, and then? You'll know. Okay. Okay, so that was uh, a little clip from the Justice League, which is not a film I was anticipating. Well, I had, I think Batman vs. Superman was the most boring film of 2017, or was it 2016? I literally walked out of Suicide Squad after half an hour, despite paying something ridiculous like 25 quid for my BFI IMAX ticket. I do not get on well with the DC universe, which is weird because I love Batman as a comic book character. I love the darkness of DC. For me, DC is infinitely superior to Marvel. And yet it just feels like this is a franchise that hasn't really found its footing. The director is not confident about what he's doing. And I guess that probably reflects the fact that I don't particularly appreciate the directorial style of Zack Snyder, who did the Superman movies too. I have to say that against admittedly incredibly low expectations, I had a pretty good time watching this film. I mean, I enjoyed it. And maybe that's because Superman was dead for a lot of it. And I think Henry Cavill, the actor who plays him, is just like a charisma void. And maybe it's because Batman, played by Ben Affleck, and Affleck just looks so bored and sort of like disinterested in the role. But it doesn't matter because he's diluted by all these other really cool characters. So Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman just continues to bring so much heart and earnestness to the role that I just adore it. And then we have these three new characters, which I found myself really loving. The first is The Flash, um, the clip we just heard is of him. So Ezra Miller, who starred in We Need to Talk About Kevin, plays The Flash as this nerdy, geeky teenage kid who he just can't wait to be a member of the Justice League because it's all his heroes. But he's hopelessly out of his depth and he's always cracking jokes and he's just great fun. I can't wait to see him in another movie. I really respect Ezra Miller because if you've ever seen We Need to Talk About Kevin, he plays such a little psychopath and here he, he just looks like a funny hapless teen and it shows great range. 
And this speaks to what's hinted at in this film, which is the backstory of The Flash, his father, played by Billy Crudup's in jail. And I would really love to see what Ezra Miller can do with that in a standalone feature where we see a more emotional arc to his character. I also really loved Jason Momoa as Aquaman. And that's amazing to me because in Conan remake and Game of Thrones, Momoa was pretty, you know, again, charismaless, just a big hulk of body, really, a no real character. But I think that probably therefore speaks to how those directors and scripts chose to use him. Because here he plays Aquaman as this sort of big shaggy rock star, heavy drinking, kind of pissed off with society, hanging out on the edges, full of fun and mischief. And he was great fun to watch. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you know, his standalone movie, which I never thought I would say before seeing Justice League. His character arc is one of a guy who's kind of like the rebel, but being sort of forced to grow up and realise that he does have to become responsible and become part of the Justice League and take a leadership role. And that's also really the arc that Wonder Woman's given, that she has to step out of the shadows and, and grieving for Steve Rogers and become a leader of the group. The final new addition to the pack is a character called Cyborg, played by Ray Fisher, who's more of an unknown actor. And I have to say, I was impressed with him too. He, in a sense, has the most serious role to play. He's struggling to come to terms with the fact that he's become part man, part machine. And the role that his own father, who's a scientist at Star Labs, has played in mutilating him effectively. And I think that This is kind of, in a sense, it's quite a silly film. It's got quite a silly plot and lots of wisecracking and jokes. But it's his character that I found the most moving. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does again in his standalone films. So effectively, what happens in this film? It falls into two parts. The first half is really just us being introduced to the new characters. And it's done in actually quite an elegant way. I think quite concise little scenes that we get to know the characters. And really, I think, for me, um, really fall in love with the Flash, Aquaman and Cyborg. We also see a world that's grieving for a dead Superman. Um, That's the ending of Batman versus Superman. Hopefully, I'm not spoiling anyone there. And the fear that now the world rests in, because hope has vanished, is literally the fear is attracting a whole bunch of what I'm going to call space wasps, led by a giant minotaur helmet wearing ancient evil called Steppenwolf, voiced by Kieran Hines from Rome. This ancient evil alien spacey kind of guy is after three boxes that are buried somewhere on Earth, because if he can put all three of them together, he can turn Earth, he can terraform it into a hellscape. I don't understand why all DC movies and Marvel movies now have to make everything this giant extravaganza of the world will end unless we save it. I mean, whatever happens to Batman just solving mafia street crime? It just It's so absurd. The stakes are so high. We've seen it all before in the Avengers, but never mind. This is what it is. Um, I was kind of actually interested in the fact that the plot kind of reminded me a little bit of Lord of the Rings without, of course, its quality and subtlety. And I love Lord of the Rings, right? So I think this is a weird comparison, but it kind of works. If you think the the three boxes are a little bit like the Ring of Power, in the backstory of the boxes, we realize that they were fought over long ago and an alliance of three species, Amazonians, Atlanteans, and men, for which read elves, dwarves, and men, um, fought and defeated this Minotaur helmet dude. And they took the boxes and they buried them so he wouldn't be able to get to them. Sound familiar with the ring hidden away for centuries? 
Um, and then again today, the three different types of people have to reunite to destroy the ring slash box and save the earth. So, yeah, anyway, in in the hands of this film, it becomes very silly and not as good as Lord of the Rings. Effectively, these are just MacGuffins because we just need to get this guy to get the three boxes, get to a certain place so we can have an ultimate showdown. But before we get there, we can use the magic of the boxes to resurrect Superman, which no film fan ever was wanting. But hey, I really, really don't like Henry Cavill at Superman. He's not in the film a lot, which is good. When he is in the film, he's used quite well. And I think what's interesting is, is that when they resurrect him, he's really like pissed off and angry and confused, as one might expect. And they use that little battle where he faces off against the other members of the Justice League to give you a kind of power ranking of the different superpowers, which personally I found useful. Um, there's also a very cool moment where, for the Flash, it's the first time he's found someone who can move through time as fast as him. And so there's a very cool kind of scene where everything is kind of slowed down in our time and the Flash is kind of whizzing past Superman and Superman kind of turns to look at him and it's so creepy and freaks the Flash out, freaked me out. And it's by far one of the best like single iconic moments of the film. What else is there to say about this film? It started off being directed by Zack Snyder, which means everything's in bullet time and sort of dark and portentous and classic DC. But then unfortunately, he had to drop out for family reasons. So the film was finished off and reshot by Joss Whedon, who you'll all know from the, some of the Avengers films, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who's probably one of the wittiest directors on the planet. And so he has injected a lot of levity and a lot of wit and banter into this film. And I love that because it made me laugh and it entertained me. And it's what really saved this film for me. I think it has drawn a lot of criticism from sort of DC purists that it's become a bit too marvelly and a bit too bantery. And I kind of get that. I kind of see this as a reflection of the insecurity and lack of confidence from the people who are running this DC franchise, that in order to save a project that's stumbling, they've made it more like Marvel, rather than really trying to figure out what is the dark heart of DC and trying to really, truly go for that, but do it in a far better and high quality way. So overall, Justice League, it's not the perfect film, but it's by far, apart from Wonder Woman, the DC film that I have enjoyed the most. I really love the wit. I really love the new characters. And the less Superman and Batman I get, the better. Can't wait for Batman to be recast. Um, and then we can go forward and rock and roll. So despite the awful reviews you might be reading, I actually think Justice League is worth watching. It's got a runtime of just 120 minutes, thank goodness. And it's rated PG-13. It's on global release. And I genuinely think it's worth giving a go. Okay, so let's take a massive handbrake turn and changing gear and head back to 1953 for a black and white noir classic called The Big Heat. Here's a little clip. Is that you, Vince? Yeah, lies with me. You weren't expecting somebody else, were you? You'll do. It's better than drinking alone. Hi, Larry. Hi, Debbie. What have you been doing all day? Shopping. <laughs> Some career, huh? Six days a week she shops, on the seventh she rests. All tired out. I know it looks good. Thanks, friend. 
Go pour yourself a drink. So, as I said before, we've got a big film on release right now called Film Stars Don't Die Liverpool. And it stars Annette Benning as Gloria Graham, who was a famous Hollywood actress back in the day. And I think Benning may well be up for Oscars for that performance. To coincide with that release, the BFI is bringing out a Gloria Graham season and re-releasing a number of her big hits. And the first of these out this weekend is called The Big Heat. It was released in 1953, directed by Fritz Lang, who's the guy who directed the iconic Metropolis and M. And it's it's long been a favourite film of mine. It's a really nasty, taut tale of corruption and also the price of doing right. And it's just beautifully acted, beautifully shot. And to me, just one of the best examples of film noir. The plot of the film really kicks off when a cop is found dead because he just cannot take informing for the mob anymore. Banyan's warned off investigating the case by his boss, who's also in cahoots with the mob, but he just will not let it go. He interrogates the dead cop's mistress, who basically is tortured and murdered off screen. And there is a lot of violence against women, um, a lot of it off screen, but you really see the consequences and the impact in this film. He keeps on investigating. He comes across the mob boss, is openly threatening him. And the mob boss is second in command. He's played by a a young Lee Marvin. And Lee Marvin's girlfriend is Debbie, Gloria Graham. I mean, I think she's a fascinating movie star because she's pretty, but she's not sort of conventionally movie star good looking. And she has this sort of slightly goofy, high-pitched voice, which is used with great effect in the, the musical Oklahoma, where she sings the famous song, I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No. And I think in a sense, the fact that she's most often remembered for that role is a bit of a shame, because she has a far greater range than that film would suggest. So here, she's really interesting, because she's a woman who is very self-aware, She's with the mob boss because she wants the money. She grew up poor. She's very open about the fact that he's violent towards her and that she thinks that that's a price worth paying. But when she sees Banyan defend another girl who's being beaten up by the Lee Marvin character, she goes to him and basically wants to cooperate, but is followed. And the revenge that her violent boyfriend takes against her is one of the most iconic scenes of violence against women in film so I'm not going to spoil it too much but this is an incredibly incredibly dark film and what's bizarre about it is is you can read it on two levels so on the first level you can say this is a clean cut you know wonderful cop who wants to do good and actually by the standards of kind of criminal justice is basically successful but when you look at the price that the women around him pay you have to ask if it's worthwhile and it really reminded me actually of Twin Peaks um, I've maybe because I've just been reading Mark Frost's Twin Peaks the final dossier but it really strikes me that there's a huge parallel between Banyan and Coop because there's a dark irony insofar as they do try and do the right thing Um, But they often bring the women who love them into danger and death. This leads us to what is, I think, an incredibly chillingly cold ending to Twin Peaks A Return. But also to the big heat, because effectively Banyan is this remorseless, ruthless, relentless character who just wants to prove a point and bring down a mobster. 
And this contrasts against his look. You know, the appearance of the actor is a little bit goofy, kind of sort of wide grim, chubby cheeked. But underneath that sort of, so to say, plain decency is someone who actually is, is as ruthless, arguably, as the mob boss he's trying to bring down. So I love that. I think this is the genius of Fritz Lang. This is what makes this great film noir, because it works on two levels. And there's a superficially quite reassuring one and this deeply, profoundly unsettling layer below. It might be a little bit hard to to track down the big heat in the cinemas. If you can, it's out from Friday. It has a running time of 89 minutes and it's rated 15. It really holds up well. You won't think you're watching a film that's 70 years old. It will feel fresh and relevant today. If you can't see it at the cinema, it is, however, available to rent and buy on Amazon Prime Video. So if you've got that service, you can check it out there. That said, you know, as much as I love the big heat, the Gloria Graham role, though, featuring a very iconic scene isn't as profound as the next movie I want to talk about. So let's go ahead and hear a clip from the trailer for In a Lonely Place. Did you see Mr. Steele last night? Yes, as I came home I saw him going to his apartment with a girl. That girl was murdered between one and two o'clock this morning. No, Dix didn't do it. You saw him after the girl left. But Lochner has a different idea. He believes Dix could have done it. I left his office feeling as though he were trying to warn me. I came here because I wanted to say these things out loud and be laughed at. But you're not laughing. Okay, so In a Lonely Place is a movie that was made in 1950, directed by Nicholas Ray, who was actually married to Gloria Graham at the time, although they kind of split up during the filming. And bizarrely, in a sort of side note, she ended up um, marrying her stepson by Nicholas Ray later. But anyway, that's another story. I think this is a really fine performance from her. I think this is probably her best. She stars opposite Humphrey Bogart, and he plays a sort of once successful, now quite cynical and jaded Hollywood screenwriter called Dix. And as the film opens, he's brought a coat check girl back to his apartment. She's ostensibly going to tell him the plot of a murder mystery that she's reading so that he doesn't have to bother reading it, but can write the screenplay. Um, she then goes home, is found murdered, and he's the prime suspect. Gloria Graham plays his new neighbour, Laurel, and she gives him a false ab- alibi on what she admits is just sort of pure instinct and they start an affair it's absolutely fascinating because the first time you see them both together it's in the police officer's interview room and Laurel's giving testimony basically to save Dix and he's sitting behind her Humphrey Bogart looking quite menacing we've already seen him being quite violent and drinking very heavily he reveals the first time he saw her it was in her bedroom window wearing a negligee there's incredible sexual tension and provocation right from the start and from to that respect it's a very modern film because they're both grown-ups They're both sexually experienced. They both enter this relationship um, with their eyes kind of wide open and they do fall in love and he starts to write again and it all seems great. But at the back of her mind, Gloria Graham's character Laurel can't help but think that every time something doesn't go his way, he massively loses his temper. And there's a scene where he's really angry at her and they're driving at high speed down a highway and he looks like he's going to kill her and she's genuinely scared for her life. Nonetheless, she agrees to marry him because she's scared what's going to happen if she says no. 
So I think this is a noir film. And of course, there's a whodunit, you know, did Dix really kill the woman at the start? But actually, it's more about a tragic love affair between a guy who is incredibly flawed and a woman who is drawn to fixing those flaws, but maybe at the peril of her own life. And that is just a beautifully nuanced portrait of love against rationality, because Graham knows he gets violently angry when he's drunk and that there's mounting evidence that he did commit the crime. So I think if, you, if you've watched film stars Don't Die in Liverpool or you're just wanting to watch one film that gives you a true picture of why Gloria Graham is a great Hollywood star and actress, I would suggest that you watch In a Lonely Place. I think it's a truly great film, beautifully directed. Bogart is just very good and actually in some sort of character aspects quite close to his real character. And Gloria Graham is really in one of the best roles I think she's ever played. The film has a running time of 94 minutes. It's rated PG, which is really fascinating and shows just how much of that tension and violence is on screen, but just held back from really being explicit, which again is a classic signal of great noir. It's being re-released this weekend as part of the Gloria Graham season at the BFI. Again, if you can't get to see it at the cinema, although I would encourage you to try and see this at the cinema because it's going to be shown on a 35mm print, then again, I think it's available on Amazon Prime Instant Video if you want to rent it or buy it. So a really great week for film because... All four of the movies I've talked about this week, I can hardly recommend, depending on your mood and what you want to watch. I think they're all absolutely, you know, Battle of the Sexes is great. Justice League is not a great film. I'm not going to think about it in a year's time, but it's fun. You know, if you just want a light comic book film, then go for it. And then the two Gloria Graham films are absolute classic noir. So please do check them out. If you agree or disagree with my take, I'm guessing the the Justice League one is going to be the most controversial, then please feel free to leave a comment on my blog at beena007.com. In the meantime, whatever you watch this weekend, I hope you have a really good time. Thanks for listening.